Good morning to you. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 12. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. We have been, of course, uh, doing some wonderful little studies in a couple of other places, 1 Corinthians 13, most notably. We had a few messages to do after the Courageous Churchman Conference <clears throat> on the issue of love in the body, and we had a wonderful study. We had left off in Luke's gospel in chapter 12, and you remember this is a section on whom we are to fear. Obviously, um, whatever culture and challenge was going on at the time, it is true that throughout church history there are, there are needs for these kinds of instructions. We must hear from the Lord on what it means to face the culture around us. And so you remember that Jesus had warned that you need to fear God and not the, the evil that is encroaching upon us. And you remember that he says, I want you to confess me before men, because if you deny me before men, that doesn't mean a, a moment of weakness. That means you deny Christ because you don't want Christ all your life. If you die in that state, then you will be denied by the Son before the Father and before the holy angels, he says. And we saw that last time. We saw that you could either be confessed by the Son based upon your response to public life. Did you love Christ? Did you confess Christ? Did you want Christ, believe in Christ, live for Christ? Or did you, by your life, the habit of your life, run from the light and hate Christ and not want Christ and deny him outright and then die in that state? You will stand before God and the Son will be there and you will either be confessed by him or denied by him. So he says, do not fear. If you know God, then you are valuable, more valuable than the mundane things of life, such as little tiny animals that live on the globe or, or the ridiculous sort of notion that, that you would count the hairs on your head. You are far more valuable, and God even knows all of that. So we have been in this section on what it means to fear God and God alone, and then we turn our attention now to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these kinds of dynamics, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these dynamics. And what I want to do today is give you a little bit of a primer on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and then we want to talk about the warning in verse 10 and the promise in verses 11 and 12. The warning in verse 10 and the promise in verses 11 and 12. It is, of course, a massive comfort to know that God has given us his spirit. By far, the most comforting and settling truth for the believer in this particular time of our life from now until we meet Christ is the reality that God has given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us until he comes. This is profound comfort for us. It secures us. It sustains us. It drives us on. It lifts us up above the otherwise faith-crushing circumstances that, that come against us every day and will certainly continue. We're taught in Scripture that the ministry of the Holy Spirit given to us by God is so absolutely certain and so extensive and we, we could say so spiritually wealthy in its riches that we're told in Scripture we can be strengthened with power through the, His Spirit in the inner man, Ephesians 3, 16. In the inner man, we can have the strength of God. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and 
Colossians 1, 9 through 11 say that very thing, that when we're prayed for, we have the very power that created the universe dwelling within us, and we can be strengthened with it. What's the result? Well, Ephesians 3, 17 says that Christ will then dwell in your hearts by faith. Christ himself dwelling within the believer by faith through his spirit. At that point, then you're rooted and grounded in love, the love of God, divine love, love that rules the universe, love that is of a divine nature, love that redeems. You're rooted and grounded in it with this kind of strength and ministry of the Spirit. You're also then able to understand this great work of redemption, its height, its depth, its breadth. You're to comprehend what is incomprehensible to anyone else. And you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is the language of the New Testament because of the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. So what does the New Testament say specifically? We've been given the Spirit, yes. In fact, Christ, when he was with the disciples, he taught them, he protected them, he cared for them, he walked with them. He spent time with them, he guarded them. He took care of their every need. He made sure they were uh, hearing the truth at the various times they needed to hear it. It was timed perfectly. He never gave them more than they could handle, and he always protected their faith for what they had heard and the level that they had grown. And when he left, he said, when I leave, it's to your advantage because I'm going to send you a helper, one of the same kind, Christ in us. He is Jesus Christ to us, his spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ. And he gave him to us the moment he convicted us of our sin and regenerated us. So it is the Spirit of God who has regenerated our dead hearts. And having regenerated us, he has taken up residence. So the helper has come to the believer. Moreover, he puts you in union with Christ. We know that from Romans 6. We, we sometimes hear the language, we are baptized into Christ. What does that mean? That means that the Spirit of God in conversion immersed you into union with Christ. Spiritual union. That is to say you have a new constitution. You think different thoughts. You have the seedbed of new desires, new affections that you could never have before. You can see things and know things and understand things that you could never see and know and understand before. You have a gravitational pull that was given to you because the Spirit immersed you into the person of Christ permanently. That is Romans 6. The Spirit did that. Having done that, Romans 8 says, he has given us then the Spirit of adoption. He himself is the Spirit of adoption. You belong. You're in the family of God. You belong to the Heavenly Father. You gravitate toward him and toward your spiritual family. This is a gift given to believers by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, he convicts. Sometimes you hear truth and you're like, ah, oh, that's so convicting. Sometimes you might have had a season in your life where you didn't like a church like that and so you, you didn't come. That's too convicting. I remember a couple telling me that when I first got here. It's just, we just want a church that's gonna give us something lighter. It just don't feel good when we leave here. I'm like, please don't go. Please don't go because... What you've just said is, I don't want the ministry of the Spirit of God. Listen, he's your friend if you're a believer. He lives inside of you. He indwells you. What is his conviction? His conviction is so that you see sin for what it is, and he keeps you from destructive paths, and he puts you on the right path so that you know and comprehend and discern that which 
will, will take you to greater heights of holiness and protection and keep you from destruction, deception, lies. And that's his ministry to us. He convicts. Just like he convicts the world of sin, John 16, he convicts believers about our need and our, our desire for Christ and where we're neglectful and where we are weak. I love that. He empowers the believer. He gives you strength. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where does that come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. Strengthened in the inner man, Ephesians 3. I can be strengthened in the inner man. He empowers me. He also does something else. He's not satisfied with a little bit of empowerment or doling out little amounts. He himself, all of him, dwells within me. He just wants me to tap all that power. And so Ephesians 5.18 says, be being kept filled up to the brim, overflowing. Walk with him, yield to him. Know his word and submit to him. When you do that, you are filled and borne along by the Spirit. I mean, those are, those are great moments, aren't they? I mean, sometimes it seems like they're fleeting, but they're great moments when it seems like you, you're thinking God's thoughts after him and you're worshiping and there's joy in your heart like you haven't felt before and you experience a clean conscience as you had not experienced before and there's clarity of mind and thought. Those are great moments of filling. How did it happen? You submitted to the truth. You humbled yourself under the truth. You believed truth over lies. And the Spirit of God filled the sails of your spiritual life and bore you along. If that weren't enough, Ephesians 1 says it's permanent. This, this indwelling is permanent in that he seals us until the day of redemption. So we're sealed. We are uh, we are given the Spirit as Christ's engagement ring, his Arabon, his down payment. Uh, he is going to wed his bride. You're caught up in that. You will get there. If you have the Spirit of God, you cannot lose him. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of Christ's, Romans 8. But you do have the Spirit of God in salvation, and you're sealed. You belong to him. It's an eternal guarantee. What a ministry he has. And then he teaches us. He teaches us. That is to say, when you hear the truth, whether it's through a gifted teacher raised up and given by God and gifted for that, or whether you open the word of God and the spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians 2, begins to illumine your mind to the implications of truth. Either way, the spirit of God takes that truth and as you believe it, he does a supernatural renovation of the way you reason. You no longer reason the way you used to reason, selfishly, worldly, earthly, demonic, self-exalting, self-preserving, self-justifying. Those are the habits of the old life, and we have those old remnants rattling around in our flesh, and they get the better of us sometimes, but you can have the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God as he brings the truth to bear upon your life. You have no need, 1 John 2 says, to be taught anything about salvation and redemption for the Spirit of God already teaches you those things. You know they're true, they ring true. That's why sometimes when you open the Bible and you read a truth, the implications of it start to just come off the page already. Wow, I know, I know what that means then for this area of my life. Wow, that implicates me in this area of my life. Wow, that's, I'm affirmed in this area because I've been obedient. Look at how that affirms me. And I, I can see now how I can help my friend over here. This is all the work of the Spirit of God as he illumines your mind and teaches. What a privilege 
to have the mind of Christ within us by his spirit so that when you access the truth, you are helped and brought to divine truth. You know it, you see it, you understand it. He also brings us into fellowship. According to, according to Philippians, we are in fellowship with one another. Philippians 2, verse 1, if, any, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God bringing us together to share spiritual resources. And then 1 Corinthians 12, he gives us gifts. Look, when you got saved, he took the package of who you are and he's redeemed you. He knows exactly what that's gonna look like over time as you mature. And he takes his enablements by his spirit. He takes your giftedness. And as you mature, he gives you further grace to edify people uniquely in the body. That's what he does. You, you, you have no option. You can't sit on the sidelines for the spirit has given you a gift enablement, a grace and it's a package, and it is the ability to serve people in a unique way, and they are built up in the faith, and you influence their spiritual life, which influences other spiritual lives, and in glory, all that's recorded so that you can know how God used you. Is this not absolutely staggering? You, you cannot then say that you are not in the flow of that. If you have the Spirit of God, you have giftedness. He also does something else. He unifies us. You ever noticed that the more we study God's word together, the more we start sounding alike when it comes to truth? You know, it's interesting. From, from the senior saints in our ministry who've been in Christ for years and years all the way to those who, who are behind the scenes in some gifted area that no one perhaps even notices or even a new believer, you, you can start listening to the way they talk about truth and it starts to align. What is that? That is the spirit of God making us of one mind, of one heart, of one perspective, of one purpose. He is unifying us, Ephesians 2, 18. We are one body, Ephesians 4, 3 and 4. He makes us one. He unites us. And lastly, According to Philippians 3.3, 3, we worship God in the spirit. The spirit of God is the source of all true worship. He's the source of all those times when we are actually submissive to God's word. By the way, worship is not how you feel emotionally during your favorite music. Worship, the highest form of worship, is when your heart and conscience are humbled under God's truth and you're submissive to it. That is the highest form of worship. So whether you're singing and doing that, or whether you're discipling and doing that, or whether you're quiet and serving and doing that, whether you're just loving Christ by yourself and doing that, it doesn't matter. Your whole life can be submissive worship as you yield to the Spirit, for we worship God in the Spirit. He's the source of all of it. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to understand the warning here in verse 10 about blaspheming him as the great revealer of God, then we're going to have to understand who he is and what his ministry is. Simply stated in general, without getting into heavy, heavy things that we don't have time for, the Spirit of God is the third member of the Trinity, of the triune Godhead. Just as a little primer, just so you know, he's the third member of the triune Godhead. Our God is a triune God. He is one God in three distinct persons. All of them persons, all of them distinct. All of them God, all of them 
co-equal, all of them essential. They're the same in essence. And yet he is one God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. And as you know, there, there is no word Trinity to describe God in any of the Old or New Testament texts. So we use the word to summarize what we learn from Scripture about who God is and what he is like. And you can see this all the way back in the beginning. You have God creating the heavens of the earth, Genesis 1.1. John 1.1 says that the Son, the second member of the Trinity, was also the creator of the universe. So he is there. And then in Genesis 1.2, the Spirit of God is hovering over and brooding over this great act of creation that was taking place. So you have allusions to this triune God. Then in Genesis 1.26, when they're going to make man in the image of God, they use the plurals there. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. You see it again when man had sinned. Genesis 3, 22, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. When mankind wanted to make a name for himself, Genesis 11, you remember the Tower of Babel. He was, he was one culture. He was monoculture, monolanguage, and absolutely loving himself and was ruled by these powerful empires that were gonna build this tower and climb their way to the universe and basically make a name that was renowned across the globe, that man is everything on his own. And it says in Genesis 11, verse seven, that God looked upon what they were doing and he said, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Again, an allusion, or a reference rather, to this Godhead who is one God in three persons. When the prophet Isaiah was commissioned in Isaiah 6 verse 8, whom shall I send, God said, and who will go for us, God said. You see the same thing sometimes in the Psalms where you have two separate persons, two separate persons referred to as God. If you, if you want to study this on your own, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, this is what it says. Your throne, O God, there's, there's a reference to God, one person. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. There you have two separate persons referred to as God. Again, referring to a a trinity or multiple persons in the Godhead. Same thing in Psalm 110.1. You can, you can study it on your own. 110th Psalm verse one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, two separate persons called Lord. You come to the New Testament and the doctrine of the Godhead in three persons is expanded greatly and you see this in Matthew 3, 16 and 17 at Jesus' baptism. You remember what happened. There you have the Son of God himself being baptized. And he went up immediately from the water, Matthew says. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming down on him. And then behold, a voice of the, out of the heavens said this. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, you have a reference to the Trinity. That's why in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, when you make a disciple, you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
All over the New Testament epistles, there are references to this. When Paul uh, closes 2 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 14, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 for probably the most concise collection of this wonderful reality. 1 Peter chapter 1, keep your finger in Luke 12 because we're going to go back there in a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, or just backing up to the opening, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and who are, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So there you have a very concise reference to the Godhead. And when Jesus promises the helper, the paraclete, the one who will come alongside, the one who's another one of the same kind, in John 14, 26, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So you have the Holy Spirit being sent by the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we have one God in three distinct persons, and some people have said, no, he's not really a person. He's just sort of an ethereal force. He's just some sort of dynamic. He's just some sort of energy uh, collection. Well, that can't be true if he possesses the same characteristics of personhood that the Father and the Son possess. And he does. The Father and the Son possess knowledge and an intellect. The Father and the Son possess affection and emotion, which is associated with personhood. And the Father and the Son have a will. And we would expect that if the Spirit has knowledge and an intellect, and he has affection and emotion, and he has a will, he is therefore person distinct person, and it's true. He revealed scripture, 2 Peter 1, 21, he moved men along by his inspiration. This work of written revelation is the work of the Spirit of God, and 1 Corinthians 2 says he knows the mind of the Father, and he is the mind of Christ, and he gives us illumination based upon that. So he has knowledge, he has intellect, he speaks to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3, as we've been studying on Sunday night. So he speaks knowledge to the churches. And most importantly, John 15, 26, he bears witness to Christ. Does he have affection? Absolutely. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit. And in Israel's day, in Isaiah 63, 10, you have a reference to the fact that they grieved the Holy Spirit by their rebellion, which you know we're reminded not to do in Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? By not putting away wrath and malice and anger and clamor and slander. By not putting on compassion and humility, all those things there in 31 and 32 of Ephesians 4. So, 
Paul, in Romans 15.30, urges the brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive in prayer with him. The love of the Spirit. He's joyful. He is loving. He can be grieved. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, etc., etc. So he has an intellect and knowledge. He has affection. And he has a will. He has a will. 1 Corinthians 12 says he distributes the gifts as he wills. And he also goes up against stubborn hearts. Acts 7 verse 51, he says you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Look, the Holy Spirit has a will and he wants you to obey it and he, he has been put within you, James chapter 4 says, to control your desires and when your desires wage war against the Spirit, you're waging war against his will. He has a will. So the Spirit himself is fully a person, a distinct person. Beloved, the New Testament's most dominant theme is that the Holy Spirit, and this is the most important part, is a gift from God to his people. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us, right? So jot down, jot down these passages, Romans 5, verse 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I, I cannot get over that verse. The Holy Spirit was given to me to spread the love of God through my life. This is why it makes no sense for a Christian not to love this is why First John, the black and white apostle, this is why he says you can know someone who knows God and someone who doesn't, whether they love the brethren. You might have moments of resentment, even moments of what you might call hatred, but as a pattern of life, you cannot practice hatred toward people and know the love of God because the spirit of God was given to us as a gift to give us that love in our hearts toward God and toward others. And we were sealed by that gift, 1 Corinthians 122, God sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, the guarantee, the down payment. We are his possession. And when you keep his commandments, it is by the Spirit who was given to us, 1 John 3, 24. So that is why it's important when we come to this text to know what his ministry is to us. Look, if he regenerated you, then why would you want to take credit for your salvation? Why would you ever be proud about anything like that? It was his ministry to believers. If you're in vital union with Christ, why would you want to connect yourself to the world and what it loves? You're in vital union with Christ, baptized into Christ by the Spirit. If you've been brought into the family of God by the spirit of supernatural adoption by the Spirit, then why in the world would you want some other family? Why would you want the world as your family? your old life as your family. He brings us into the family of God through spiritual adoption. You don't want anything else. You don't want to go back on that. If he convicts us, why would you resist his con conviction? If he empowers you, why would you look for earthly strength? If he fills you, why would you want to stay on spirit, supernatural empty all the time by neglect? If he sealed us and we belong to him until the day of redemption, why do you live sometimes as though you're not going to get to the day of redemption? That there's, there's no security, no hope. Why do you get self-pitying and depressed? 
If he strengthens us, why do you sometimes act like God is stingy with his strength? Or act like it's his problem in neglecting you? If he teaches us, why would you go anywhere else but his source? This is his revelation. Why would you mix it with worldly opinions? If he gives spiritual gifts, why would you be on the sidelines? If he makes you one body, why would you be a faction? Strife. If he is the source of true worship, why do you imagine that worship involves some earthly dynamic? Can we sin against him as believers? Yeah, the scriptures say we can. You can grieve him. In the early church, Ananias and Sapphira lied to him. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Their motive was sinful. They held back something they had promised in a vow. Very important for the early church to establish a standard of integrity and honesty before the Lord in ministry, particularly regarding their motives and their heart for service. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. And Acts says they tested him. You can do that sometimes. You can neglect the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says you can quench him. You know how you quench the Spirit's work in your life? By not loving preaching, by not loving truth, by not loving discipleship and instruction because he says do not despise utterances that are from God. Don't do it. Don't despise revelation. He's the revealer. You despise the Spirit when you despise revelation. But what we're dealing with here in verse 10 is what unbelievers are warned about We're warned not to go there, but this is a direct reference to the Pharisees around them. Look at Luke 12, verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. Stop right there. Why is that? Why is it that a word against the Son of Man could be forgiven him? Because he is the Son of Man. There were some who said, look, he's a carpenter from Nazareth. It's very difficult for you to believe a man is God when he looks like you, sounds like you, feels like you. He's a human being. He's from, you know, he's a hayseed from up in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that place? Isn't he Joseph's son, a carpenter? Surely he can't be God. Our Messiah is going to float down with halos and big choirs, and he's going to come in and go right up and march up to Rome and just dominate and get our country back and our, our freedoms back. Of course, it was very easy then to say, I reject you as the son of God. And God says, you know what? I'll have lots of mercy on someone who rejects for a long time because I get all of that. But when you, like the Pharisees, have had the spirit of God revealing to you over and over again by divine power and divine revelation with such clarity that this is the son of God and you conclude what the Pharisees said in chapter 11 and verse 15, you are from hell, I mean, when you can have that kind of piercing clarity in your revelation and you conclude that not only is Jesus not an authority, not only is he not God, but he is from hell itself. He's empowered by Satan. Jesus says that is a hardness that comes from a hatred for the revealer himself. It's not hatred of a man you don't believe is God. That's bad enough. It's hatred for the one who reveals him as God, the spirit himself. If he is revealing with that kind of clarity and all you do is conclude the good is evil and evil is good, you are in a state of hardness, Jesus says, that for many will be absolutely unpardonable at that level. 
They will reach a level where it is unforgivable because you are attributing what is, what is holy to what is from the pit of hell. You are blaspheming the revealer himself. You're insulting him and provoking him, Hebrews 3, 10 warns. You're rebelling against him and resisting him like they did in Genesis 6, verse 3. You're testing him like Psalm 78, verse 41, warned about the generation that had tested God in Israel. So hardened against the grace of the Holy Spirit that they blaspheme him. They blaspheme his clear revelation of Jesus Christ. This, he says, is unpardonable or unforgivable sin. What were the Pharisees doing? They were trying to get the masses to reject Christ by insisting that Jesus worked his miracles not by the power of the revealer himself, but by hell itself, by Satan himself. And we saw that when we studied that section. And so Jesus identified the Pharisees' accusation as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 31 says that very thing. And he says it's an unforgivable offense to be so exposed to the direct power of God attending the message and to attribute that power to hell. That is running from the light. That is hating the light, hating Christ, hating God. And from that point on, they desired to kill Jesus. They wanted to murder him. That's a devilish hardness for which there is no remedy. Sometimes people say to me, if I, you know, sensitive conscience people, if I committed the, the unpardonable sin, I say, why? Why do you say that? Well, because in a, in a moment of desperation, I got so angry, I, I cursed at God, and I said Jesus' name in vain, and I said a bunch of filthy things, and, and even I, I, I wanted to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It was, my, it was in my heart to just be angry at him. And I'll say, that's pretty terrible stuff. That's bad stuff. Do you want Christ now? Yes, I want Christ. Then you're not in that sin. Because one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit hates Christ and never does anything but hate Christ. You cannot be unpardonable if you want Christ on Christ's terms. If you say Christ is from hell, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. This was the difference. The Pharisees had such clear revelation from the revealer himself, and they blasphemed him. It was one thing to say, oh, Jesus, you're just a man. I know your earthly father. I know your earthly mother. I get it. You're just, you build tables. You're not God. But when the power of the Holy Spirit is on such profound display in the person and work of Christ. You stand there as the religious leaders who know the Old Testament. You have all that revelation. You have all the, all the work of Christ and all of his miracles and his own message. You've never been able to stump him once and you conclude that he is tied to hell. You're done, Jesus said. You're done. What a warning. Now, it is no wonder that Jesus gives that warning because he, he wants those Pharisees pointed out. Notice a little bit earlier, back in chapter 11, verse 53, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Look, if you're repentant, 
I mean, your own pastor, if you belong to this church, I had a time in my life when I shook my fist at God and said, leave me alone. Get out of my face. I don't want anything to do with you. Is that blasphemous? Of course, in one sense. Is that foolish? Wow, really foolish. That's like an ant in an anthill telling you to get out of the way. And that's a crude analogy for something far more profound. How ridiculous a creator being told by a creature something as foolish as that. But I'm saved. I mean, he redeemed me. I wasn't unpardonable because I don't hate Christ and, and I don't attribute what Christ is and how he's been revealed to something from hell. I experienced the mercy of Christ and love Christ. And if you have a sensitive conscience, you believe something like that happened in your past, just turn to Christ. If you want Christ, it, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin because someone who's committed that sin doesn't want Christ. They hate Christ. They're hostile. They want to end it. They want to end truth. They run from the light because their deeds are evil and they don't want them exposed. They love the darkness. There's also the sin of apostasy, which the Bible warns about. You might not commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but what about apostasy itself? What about the fact that you professed Christ one time in your life and then you just decided, I'm done. I'm done with Christ. Look, you could die in apostasy. That would be terrible enough. Hebrews has lots of warnings about that, particularly chapter six. Some fall away and God gives them over to it. You're done. He gives them over to it. But how can you tell they've been given over to it? They're still in their hatred for Christ. They still do not want anything to do with the truth that they once professed. They don't want it. I can't see their heart. I hope they're not completely in utter apostasy and left to themselves, but God warns that he does leave some completely in their state of, of gracelessness. He does. What a warning. Don't ever go there. Esau was one such guy. You say, but no, but no. Esau wanted to repent. No, he didn't want to repent on God's terms. What he wanted was his birthright back. He wanted his reputation back and his power back and his earthly money. He wanted some earthly kingdom back that he had lost in the cheap giving away of his birthright for a single meal because he was full of arrogance and, and impulsiveness. He wanted that back. And he sought for that with tears, but there was no place found for repentance in his heart. That's the kind of person that you might say, God has given over. But not someone who wants Christ. Not someone who wants Christ. Now you can imagine what someone reading that, verse 10, would think. Uh-oh. So I'm to fear God. I'm not to deny the Son. But I don't want to blaspheme the Spirit because that's unpardonable. What's going to happen to me when I get dragged before the authorities and I am in serious trouble? Because I don't have the courage I know that if I got intimidated to that level or a sword was put to my neck, I have no confidence that I'm going to stand. I could in that moment blaspheme the Spirit. And that's where the promise comes in in verse 11 and 12. Notice. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I love this because if that verse was an encouragement to you, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. 
If that verse makes no sense to you and only increases your hatred for Christ, see me afterwards. What a great encouragement here. What a great promise that because of the conviction of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and because of the truth that he puts into your mind and embeds in there and renews your mind, then in the moment of persecution with that coworker, that colleague, or the government, or an empire, or someone that's gonna come against you, just as he was indicating might happen to them here, in that moment, the conviction of the truth that the Spirit of God has renewed you with comes up into thoughts in your mind and out of your mouth timed by the Spirit's providence for the moment. And you will not, this is the whole point, you will not blaspheme the Holy Spirit or deny the Son because the Spirit of God whom you submit to teaches you that very hour not to do that. He strengthens you, he encourages you, he gives you, he gives you the ability to stand and what to say. And it's, look, it's not the charismatic notion that into your mind is gonna come some audible voice. That isn't it. You're not looking for some mystical audible voice. You're not neglecting scripture, neglecting scripture, and then you hope in that moment, oh yeah, the Spirit's just gonna give me these powerful words and I'm gonna just level the place. That isn't it. You don't neglect the revelation of the Spirit of God. You begin to build conviction by believing it in faith. In that moment, in those providential moments, those convictions turn into renewed thoughts which come out of your mouth perfectly timed by the Spirit of God to set straight the truth and to call out error and to be bold and courageous and to take a stand and to not deny the Son but confess Him. What a promise. That ever happened to you, by the way? There you are listening to sermons and you say, how, how can we retain all this stuff? Look, don't worry about retaining it all, Jesus says. Don't worry about that. Expose yourself to it. Keep exposing yourself to the truth. Sit under messages. Be discipled. Read the word. Study the word. Take a look at that chapter. Read that book. Come under a discipler that you, that you've, you know can teach you some hard things about areas of your life you need to change. Come be a part of the body of Christ and let that permeate and marinate. And in the moment, in the providence of God, the Spirit of God takes those renewed moments, they become convictions by faith, they become renewed thoughts, and the truth comes out of your mouth. Has it ever happened to you like that? I know it's happened to me from time to time. Sometimes I stumble all over myself and my tongue seems like Moses' tongue, all thick. You don't know what to say. And you know, you wonder, oh, I'm gonna be intimidated. Oh, I'm not really sure about what to say. Look, here's the, here's the whole goal. If you have a clear conscience before God and if you are asking God for his grace in the moment and you have spent time under the truth then ask the Spirit of God in that moment to take all of that information and bring it to a critical mass for the moment in that very hour. And it says he teaches you in that very hour what you ought to say. That is to say it doesn't come out of nowhere that you've never built a foundation. It comes out of the foundation, taught by the Spirit of God, given to you for the time of the moment. And as you're sensitive to him, you become bold like you hadn't been bold. You say things you, you hadn't ever thought to be able to say like that. A stream of consciousness happens. Thoughts are strung together. Even areas of theology that you'd been hearing but never thought you could retain. Suddenly you've spoken it. Somebody asks you about the deity of Christ and you may not remember chapter and verse all the time, but the truth is there. And it's, it makes clear biblical sense. 
and it answers their question. Or you come up with another question that puts them on their heels because their question was all skeptical and you brought up truth that puts them on their heels. That's the spirit of God bringing conviction to your mind in the form of thoughts and it comes out in your words. Listen, beloved, I love that. I don't have to be eloquent. I don't have to be erudite. I don't have to be skilled. I just have to be, have a clear conscience and submissive. Now, Beloved, if you don't put the word of God in, if you neglect that, you know, the well's not going to be very deep in the moment. The Spirit of God will still teach you what to say, but you don't want to be satisfied with that. You don't want to be sitting there wondering how much more you could have helped someone who was really in need, but it's because you've neglected the truth. And then let me remind you how gracious God is even when you have neglected the truth. Isn't it amazing that he still uses you sometimes and you just back away and you say, what in the world was that? How gracious is our God that all week I've been neglecting him and yet he gave me someone to share with and I was able to help them. Oh Lord, I feel so guilty. And guess what he does? He uses that to teach you to bring your heart under the truth all the more. Do we not have the most generous God to give us the spirit of God for that kind of ministry. This is what we have as believers. This is it. This is who he is to us and who he is in us. Don't neglect that. Open your heart to the spirit's work. And for those of you who don't believe in God, open your heart to the spirit or else you could be left unpardonable if you hate him out with me. Lord, what, a, what an incredible text of scripture. And you have taught us to fear you and we confess already that we wonder at times how you could use us at all. But we bask in your promise and in your love and in your presence and that you were a gift to us and that you live in and among your people and you empower us and you feed us and strengthen us and teach us. You sustain us, you hold us. We won't be lost, we cannot be lost. And to think that in those moments when we need to give a defense, you will teach us by the convictions that have been wrought in us through your truth. And that we'll, in those moments, learn what to say and and we will say it and we'll be your mouthpiece. This is wonder to us. And we are warned, Lord, to love the truth and love that you revealed it, to love the Godhead and love the Father and love the Son and love the Spirit, to always gravitate toward the truth and, and the light and not run from it. Lord, what a gift you've given to us. Illumine us, renew us, Cause us to know our security in you by your spirit. Empower us. Give us wisdom and insight for anyone you bring our way and may we be open and have courage, be willing, spend us for the gospel by the work and ministry of your spirit. Lord, we love you. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you. God, and we're so thankful that you empower us for ministry. And so may we be willing vessels, we pray in Christ's name, amen.